Amen. Lord, that is so true. There truly is none like you. You're such a great and an awesome God. I thank you, Lord, that we can know you better than we can know our spouse, better than we can know our children. What a privilege that we can know Almighty God in such an intimate way. And then, Lord, that we're going to know you even better one day in heaven. Lord, I pray tonight as we go to your word, we'd get to know you better because to know you is to love you. Lord, may you open up your word to every single heart. Give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. Good to have you guys here. Turn your Bibles to Joshua 24. Thanks, Tony. If you don't have a Bible, grab one. We'll get you one. Got plenty. So, Lord willing, we're going to finish Joshua tonight. How about it? Love the Bible. All right. Well, just to catch you up, we're going to finish looking at Joshua tonight, Lord willing. And this is the book, again, as we talked about, that typifies, there's a picture of the Spirit-filled life. What it means to walk in the center of God's will. We've seen over the past 23 chapters, the children of Israel finally coming to the place where they entered the land. All of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy is all about them coming out of the land and then moving toward the land, but not until Joshua do they finally enter in. We've talked about this repeatedly, that Moses did not enter in because Moses is a type of the law, and Joshua, whose name is also Jesus, is the only one that could bring them in. We know that not all of the tribes went in. Two and a half of the tribes settled for less than God's highest. I wish... That was the percentage today of Christians that were doing that. Nine and a half. Can you imagine if if 75% of all Christians were exactly where God wanted them to be, doing exactly what God wanted them to be doing? This world would be so radically different, amen? But sadly, there were nine and a half tribes that went in and two and a half tribes that stayed on the outside. Now, they've entered into the land of promise, but as we've seen, the greatest trials were waiting for them. And often as Christians, we're under this misconception that if we are sold out for the Lord, all our trials are going to go away. And the truth is that often the trials get greater. But here's the difference. When I would much rather deal with the consequences of being sold out for God and, and being on fire for Him and facing the persecution of the world than deal with the consequences of my sin. How about you? So much better to walk in the center of God's will and face the persecution of being sold out for God than to be facing the consequences of my own sin. In the case of sin, there needs to be repentance and brokenness before God. But when we face trials, we just need to pray for strength and perseverance to remain steadfast. So the children of Israel walking in obedience, filled with the Spirit of the living God. They faced giants, they faced mighty fortresses, they faced great armies. In each case, they won the victory, not because of their own physical might, but because of the greatness of God. Remember that some of the commands seem weird to them. I'm giving you like a review of the book because we're finishing it tonight. But remember, they went in the first battle they fought was against what city? Jericho. See, that's more of the two and a half tribes than the nine and a half getting that right, huh? But here's the truth. The truth is that we talked about this. The first battle was Jericho, the huge walls, and he said march around. and makes no sense from the world's perspective, but that's when we get to see God work. The only failures that we really saw within the land was when Achan, in his greed, chose to take some of the spoils, and they end up losing a fight at Ai, and the one time where they were duped by the Gibeonites because they didn't seek the Lord, and they pretended to be something that they weren't. 
So walking in the center of God's will, they've done great things. But at the same time, the one thing we're going to see as we continue through the Old Testament, the one thing they did not do is they did not eradicate the land completely when God told them to. God kept kept telling them, take all of it out. And they kept holding on to a little bit of it. And, And it's so true for every one of our lives that we will be on fire for God, but at the same time, we'll hold on to certain sins, pet sins, or we'll make excuses for why this one little behavior is okay. We might even explain it in a way that's not really sin, because you don't understand what my life's like. And the truth is that when we do that, we only miss out on God's highest. We're not... You know, we're, we're taking away from all that God would want to do in our lives. Now, there was one faithful example who eradicated the land given to him completely. What was his name? Caleb. Very good. Interesting. I just got, we got a call this afternoon that uh, the Beliezes had their baby and they named him Caleb. And they named him Caleb because they were really impacted by the message a few Sundays ago. So I like that. You know, you name him after a godly guy in the Bible. You can't go wrong there. Well, Caleb said, give me the land of the giants. He went up and fought them because he trusted the word of God and he eradicated the land completely. And then he passed it on to the next generation when he said, whoever marries my daughter is going to have to do the same. A young man by the name of Othniel stepped it up, went down, fought the land below him, wiped them all out. And when we get to Judges, chapter 1, we're going to see the first judge over Israel is a man by the name of Othniel. Who gets it? Why? Because he had a godly father-in-law who passed it on to the next generation. So now we come to these final two chapters. Joshua is about to die. He's about to go into the presence of Almighty God. But now the children of Israel have settled into the land. They're real comfortable there now. They've been there about 20 years. And after 20 years of being a Christian, we can just kind of settle in and just kind of roll with it. You know, I'm going to heaven and yeah, you know, hey. I used to be really fired up for God, but you know, now I've calmed down. And I want to encourage you, may we never calm down, amen, when it comes to the Lord. And I don't mean out of control, you know, but you know, at the same time, there should be a greater passion for God every single day. It shouldn't be dying down as we walk with the Lord. Well, Joshua, talking to these who have settled in, last week in chapter 23, he reminded them of all that God had done for them. He exhorted them to obey the Lord and persevere going forward. He cautioned them about what would happen if they fell into idolatry. And then he warned them of the consequences of not obeying God. So tonight we're going to listen to the final words of this time he has with them. And now he's going to want to renew their covenant with the Lord. And I like this. Now imagine you're laying on your deathbed. You gather all of your family around you. You can impart any words to them. What would they be? Well, hopefully, there would be things that would impact them, not just for that day or for that week or for that month or even for their lifetime, but for eternity. And that was Joshua's heart. Joshua said, these are my sons and daughters in the faith. These are the last words I can say to them. And boy, I want to make sure that they restore their relationship with the Lord. It says in 3 John, verse 4, that I know no greater joy than to know my children walk in the truth. And that's the heart of a dad. You know what? I've got four kids, and there's nothing I pray for more, and there's nothing I would want more than to see my four kids on fire for God. You want to know what makes me weep quicker than just about anything? Seeing my kids worship, or listening to my kids pray. Wipes me out. Why? Because I'm a dad, and I love my kids, and I want to see them have intimate fellowship with God. God has no grandkids, you guys. So God's, our kids aren't getting to heaven because of us. 
they got to at some point have their own intimate fellowship with the Lord. So his desire was to have them reestablish their relationship with God, rededicate their lives to the Lord, that they would decide to follow God with their whole heart. So I titled the message tonight for you note takers, you got to serve somebody. You got to serve somebody. That's the title of the message. And Joshua had that heart to encourage his, quote, children in the faith to serve the Lord. Here's the truth. Everybody's serving somebody. That's an absolute fact. You guys remember the song by Bob Dylan? All right. Though he's been walking with the Lord for a while. That guy, I don't, he cannot sing. I don't get it. I don't know how to sing, right? I don't get it. But here's the thing. The lyrics were pretty powerful, though. You got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. And he went down a list of all these professions, and it's so true, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, you have to serve somebody. So in these verses tonight, there's two main, main points. Joshua is going to remind them of their pl- past blessings, each of which are going to have applications for each one of us. And then he's going to exhort them concerning their calling and responsibility. He's going to say, here's what God's done for you, and now here how, here's how you should respond. The same is true for us. Here's what God has done for you, here's how you and I should respond. We're going to see in the text that God chose them, God delivered them, God guided them, God gave them an inheritance, and then the response would be to decide to serve the Lord and then be devoted in their actions for the Lord. So let's begin in verse 1, looking at Joshua reminding them of their past blessings. First, beginning that God chose Israel very much in the same way He chose you and I. Look at verse 1. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel, for their, for their heads, for their judges, for their officers, and they presented themselves before God. So Joshua gathers all the tribes together at Shechem. Now, he brings them all back to Shechem to have this time of devotion or rededication to the Lord. Now, why Shechem? Let me tell you why. Shechem is located right between two mountains, as we've talked about, Gerizim and Ebal. If you remember earlier, half the tribes were on one side pronouncing the blessings of God, and the other half were pronouncing the cursings of God. And people say, boy, that's weird. But here's what they were doing. Look, if we follow God in obedience, here's what God will do for us. And if we disobey God, here's what we're going to face. It was at Shechem where... Abraham, some five or six hundred years earlier, was told by God that they would inherit the land. Five or six hundred years earlier in this, that very same spot, God had said, you're going to inherit the land, and so they're going back to that very same place to find out, again, to rededicate themselves to what God had promised. It's the place where Jacob would build an altar in Genesis 33, and it's here where Joshua, back in chapter 8, had stopped at the beginning of their conquering the land. And so now he's saying, hey, we're going to go in. He built an altar there before the Lord and was preparing them to enter in at Shechem. Now Shechem also became one of the refuge cities. Remember there are six refuge cities. Three inside the land of Canaan, three on the outside of Canaan. And those refuge cities were places where people could run and find safety. And this didn't mean a whole lot until you needed it. A manslayer accidentally killed somebody that made sure the roads were smooth, the signs were pointed, here's where safety is, and that's a big deal. You'd have to cross over rivers or cross over mountains. You could get there quickly. And when, the, when you killed somebody accidentally, they had a family member, a blood avenger, whose assignment was to kill you. And the only way you could be safe was to run into the city of refuge. Well, we know the Word of God tells us that Jesus is our refuge. 
And so here they are in Shechem, the city of refuge, the place where God had told them they would get the land of promise. This was indeed holy ground to the Israelites and an appropriate place for the children of Israel to rededicate their lives to the Lord, to renew their covenant. Now, there's times where we need to make commitments to God. Sometimes people say, why do pastors give people an opportunity to rededicate their lives so often? Because we need to. Amen? We need to recommit our lives to Him because so easily we get our eyes off of Him. It's so easy for us to get caught up in the world and the things around us. Jesus said this in Revelation, Nevertheless, I have something against you because you have left your first love. Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works or else I will come to thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of thy place except you repent. He was calling for the people of Shechem is like calling them back to the place of their first works. This is where God told us we were getting the land. This is the place where we made our first dedication to God. Here's where we made our covenant. Let's come back to this place and rededicate our lives to the Lord. I want your eyes focused on Him. I want my last breath to you guys to be rededicating your lives and us as a people to Almighty God. That's my heart. You know, it's interesting. I'm not a big believer in you know, places so much because the body of Christ is, is the people. But a few years ago, I was down at a pastor's conference in Southern California. And I, we had some free time, and I got in my, my car, and I, by the grace of God, I found the church that I went to when I was from the age of two until I was about seven years old. And I was driving around, and I found it, and it just so happened that it was closed, but I went back to the children's ministry area, and the door was open. So I hope God will forgive me, but I went in. And I went in and I walked and I found the little room where I was four years old where I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And it still had the little chairs, you know, little tiny chairs. And so I went in there and I sat in one of those little chairs and I just was worshiping the Lord. And for me, it's just a room, but for me it was Shechem. For me it was a place where I was just like, Lord, God, look what you've done in 38 years of my life. 38 years ago was when I got saved. And Lord, look what you've done and you know, it was the grace of God that door was open. It was the grace of God. And it was just like I remembered it. Man, it's amazing how God will sear some things in your memory. And so for them, going back to Shechem was going back to that place where they had dedicated their lives to the Lord. When they walked up on that mountain, it was like, okay, I remember this place. This is the place where we dedicate our lives to the Lord. And that's something we need to do again. It says there, he called all the elders and all the heads and judges and officers. And he gathered them all together. All the people, but specifically he wanted to minister to the leaders as well because they would be the ones that would pass it on to the next generation. They presented themselves before God. It says in the end of verse 1, it's believed that the ark was brought there. And I believe that to be true. So the ark of the covenant was brought there because that's the, that was what they recognized as the presence of God. So here they are in Shechem. The Ark of the Covenant is there. He's brought them back to this place to dedicate their lives, rededicate their lives to the Lord, a symbol again of God's divine presence. Here's the good news. You and I can enter into God's presence anywhere and anytime. You know, for them, they had to go to the Holy of Holies and the veil was there and, you know, they couldn't enter in and only the high priest could and there was kind of this distant relationship with God and they're looking forward to the coming Messiah. Well, guess what? The Spirit of the living God lives inside of us. The veil's been torn and we can talk to Him anywhere and anytime. Now, can you imagine how much would it have been worth to those people if someone could have said to them, you can access God anywhere and anytime. They would have went, oh, so awesome. 
Well, may we not take it for granted just because we're blessed. Amen? May we be fervent in our prayer lives. And Joshua said, verse 2, to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. The first thing he's reminding them of is what God had done for them. He's telling them all the things God had done for them. And the first thing he did is he said he chose you. Now, did he choose Israel because Israel was so awesome? You guys are just such great people. I looked all around, and you were the best people on the planet. Look what he says about Abraham. Father Abraham. What was his father? An idol worshiper. I believe that Abraham was an idol worshiper as well. He grew up in a house filled with idol worshipers. And so Joshua says, thus says the Lord. He's speaking on behalf of Almighty God, and he reminds them of where they as a people came from. By the way, you were all idol worshipers. That's what he's telling them. Abraham, you know, Father Abraham, father of the faith, idol worshiper. His dad was an idol worshiper. God brought him out. It wasn't because Abraham was such a mighty man that God said, oh, I can't do without him. It was because God is a gracious God that he delivered Abraham. God chose Abraham because God is gracious, not because Abraham was great. And that ought to be an encouragement to every one of us. That God chose us not because we're great, but because he is gracious. Now, notice that he said, thus says the Lord. I want to point out that this is prophecy in the Bible. And I think that word is misunderstood a lot. Prophecy does not mean that somebody necessarily is coming up and telling you about something in your future. It can be that. But more often, it, instead of foretelling, it's forthtelling. It's proclaiming truth. Now, he's speaking on, be, it's when someone speaks on behalf of God. Now, be careful when you think you're doing that. Be careful with, thus saith the Lord. Amen? How many times could you be wrong doing that in Old Testament times? Once, and then you'd be dead. So people were very careful. They wanted God to like write it on a wall. Tell me four times. Set my hair on fire like Moses or something. God, I want to know it's you. And too often today, people just throw that out. Well, God told me. God told me. I have people tell me that all the time. Well, God told me. I prayed about it. I put a fleece out before God and he showed me it was okay for me to sleep with my girlfriend. No, he didn't. God will never tell you something contrary to his word. Amen? So don't say, thus saith the Lord and try to blame something on God when it's just plain you. We need to be very careful. But in this case, he is saying, this is the Lord. And this is what God is saying. These are not my opinions. This is the word of God. And then he tells them again that Abraham had come from a family that was filled with idolaters. But look what it says. So his family was filled with idolatry. They lived on the other side of the Euphrates River. Verse 3, Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river and led them throughout the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. So Abraham and his family were idolaters when God called them. He called them out of that idolatrous land. Now, this should be an encouragement again. Too often people think that God can't use them because of the family they came from. You know, if you knew the family I came from, you would know I was disqualified and God could never use me. Guys, the first family, Adam and Eve, Cain killed Abel. That's the first family. Every family has, since existence has been dysfunctional because the right word for it is sinful. 
How many of you came from a family that wasn't sinful? You raise your hand. You're li- now your family's sinful because you're lying and you just brought them all down. Here's the truth. That we've all come from sinful families. We've all come from struggles. Some of us are more blessed than others having Christian parents. And I'm not downplaying that. But the point is that God took Abraham out of an idolatrous land. He called him out of the land. And he gave them the land to, to possess. And I love that he multiplied his descendants and he gave him Isaac. It doesn't say he earned anything. Nowhere does it say that Abraham earned anything. God's faithfulness delivered Abraham, not his character. Stephen declared, the God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham. So God showed up, appeared to Abraham, called him out of the land, and what did Abraham do? He just obeyed. Guys, that's what we're called to do, obey. God does the work, we obey. God makes the way, we obey. God's the one that opens up the sea, we walk through it. God's the one that says, here's my calling on your life, I just want you to respond. God is the one who does the work. We simply obey. Jesus said to his disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you and have appointed you. God led them through Canaan as far as Shechem. God led, multiplied, gave him his firstborn son. But you know what? He had another son before what God calls his firstborn son, Ishmael. Now Ishmael, how did he get Ishmael? Did God give him Ishmael? He decided that God was a little slow on the downtake. And his wife came and said, uh, you know, God promised us a child. It's been like 17 years now. It hasn't happened. So here's what I'm thinking. My pretty young maidservant, I think you should go sleep with her. And then maybe that's God's way of giving us a child. And Abraham said, okay. I don't see him putting up much of a fight. His wife was like 99. Hagar might have been 25, I don't know. But he said, okay, well guess what? Look at the Middle East today. That's all consequences of him sleeping with Hagar. Because all the descendants of Ishmael are still the the enemies of Israel to this day. So guys, when we try to help God out, get ready for the consequences. God doesn't need our help, amen? He needs us just to obey and follow in what He has already called us to do. So he blessed Isaac, the son of promise, it says there. Then in verse 4, God gave, it says, To Isaac, I gave Jacob and Esau. To Esau, I gave the mountains of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. So God was the one that gave two sons to Isaac, the son of promise. But we know Esau was a picture or a type of the flesh. Remember, he sold his birthright for what? A bowl of what? A bowl of soup. This guy's not real sharp. Not only is he fleshly, he's pretty dumb. Your birthright means you get double the inheritance. So he gave away half of his inheritance for a bowl of soup. This guy's buying steak knives and $2,000 vacuum cleaners. I mean, this guy is buying everything. And sadly, Esau missed out. Why? Because he allowed himself to get in his flesh. And he missed out on God's highest. But it was God who had given Even Esau, disobedient Esau, a land in the mountains, and he put him there so that Jacob would be able to have a land of his own. He became the ancestor of the godless Edomites. But God chose Jacob, who became the father of the children of Israel. It says there, but Jacob went down to Egypt. Now, why did he go to Egypt? You guys remember? Because there was a what in the land? A famine. Now, God had promised to provide for him, but yet he kind of learned from his dad that maybe God needs some help sometimes. 
So he went down into Egypt. How did that work out? Not too good. 400 years of bondage. Why? Because they didn't obey the word of God. Now, at the same time, while in bondage, they grew. And this is how our God often works. We'll disobey God, we'll get ourselves in a mess, and then God will allow us to grow through it. Because He's a faithful and a loving God. So Joshua reminds them of their past blessings. He first tells them that God chose Israel. But not only did He choose Israel, look what it says, He delivered them. Look at verse 5. I also sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt according to what I did among them. Afterward, I brought you out. Now Moses and Aaron, I love the two of them are so often together because they are what? They're what? They're brothers. But Moses was the deliverer, and Aaron was the what? The high priest. Moses and Aaron, God used those two men to go and deliver them out of the bondage in Egypt. Egypt is a type of the world, and Moses is the deliverer, Aaron is the high priest, who's our deliverer and our high priest? Jesus Christ. Who delivered us out of bondage? And as we've talked about many times before, it was the plagues, as he says in verse 5, that he brought upon Egypt, that delivered him out of the land, and the last plague was Passover, where the blood of the lamb and the shape of the cross delivered them out of bondage. So Moses and Aaron, a type of Christ, the blood of Christ, the cross of Christ, delivered them out of bondage. And God delivered Israel. Again, a picture of our Savior. We're going to see several of them in tonight's text. So the same work that Christ did for us, delivering us out of bondage. Then look at verse 6. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. So they cried out to the Lord, and He put darkness between you and the Egyptians, brought the sea upon them, and covered them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. Then you dwelt in the wilderness a long time. Now remember, He's reminding them of all that God had done for them. At this point now, it's been about 60 years since the Red Sea. So a lot of the people, again, they needed to be reminded of what God had done. Most of them, Maybe very, some of them were very small children then because the younger generation did enter in. But most of them had not been at the Red Sea and didn't know about it. But he's reminding them of what God had done for them. And I love the heart of a dad to pass that on to the next generation. That should be an encouragement to every mom and dad here that we ought to be doing the same. So Israel was brought out. Their backs were against the wall. They're surrounded. And they what? Started what? Complaining. Moses! Why did you bring us out? Man, oh, we're all going to... Did you drag us out here to die? And then what did God do? He opened up the Red Sea and they passed through. And then the army of Egypt followed behind them. The Red Sea fell down on them. Now, it's interesting. There are people today trying to say, well, it wasn't really the Red Sea. It was the Reed Sea, which is only a few inches deep. And so what they really did is they crossed over on the Reed Sea, and it wasn't really a miracle. Well, I think that's a greater miracle because a bunch of guys in chariots drowned in two inches of water. So the point is that God, it was the Red Sea, just as God said, and it swallowed them up, and they got to see the mighty hand of God, and it was encouragement to them going forward that God indeed was in control. They had cried out to the Lord, it says in verse 7, so they cried out to the Lord, and He put darkness between them. So it was when they cried out to God that God answered them. You know what? Don't underestimate what can happen when we pray. 
God hears our prayers, guys. Can I encourage you that one of the things that God is burning in my heart more and more and more is that we as a church need to pray more. We need to pray more. And it needs to start with me first. I need to pray more. I need to pray for you more. I need to pray for you individually more. I need to pray for the lost people in Santa Cruz more. I need to pray to know God's heart for our church more. I need to pray for my wife and my kids more. Because prayer doesn't change God's mind, it changes our hearts. And I want my heart in tune with the Lord's. How about you? And so he said, you know, when we cry out to God, God hears us every single time. He's always listening. So Joshua reminds them of their past blessings. God had chosen Israel. God had delivered Israel. Now verses 8 through 10, God's going to guide them. So I brought you into the land of the Amorites who dwelt on the other side of Jordan. And they fought with you. But I gave them into your hand that you might possess the land. And I destroyed them from before you. Notice who did all the work here. Who brought them? God did. Who dwelled, who, who was the one who gave them in, the enemy into their hand? The Lord did. Who was the one that destroyed them? The Lord did. What did they do? They showed up. That's all they did. Showed up. God's just looking for someone to show up. And they showed up and God did all the work. I destroyed them, he says. The battle belongs to the Lord. God gave them the victory. There's no enemy too great for our God. No trial, no difficulty, no enemy, no disease. You know, every one of those things is an opportunity to see God work. So not only can there be enemies attacking from the outside, but sometimes there are people that maybe have intimate knowledge of you who try to bring you down from the inside. Look at verse 9 and 10. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose to make war against Israel. And he sent and called Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Therefore, he continued to bless you. So I delivered you out of his hand. You guys remember that story that Balak was scared spitless because what? He kept hearing how the children of Israel were wiping everybody out. Everywhere they went, God went in front of them. It was no contest. And they were heading in their direction. Now the truth is that God was not even going to attack him. But Balak, afraid that they might, called for Balaam, a, you know, a rent-a-prophet. And he paid him some money and said, if you'll curse him, I'll give you some stuff. So Balaam said, okay. And he curses him. And God doesn't listen. Gee. You know what? I'm not worried about anybody cursing me. How about you? You don't have to worry about it. Well, somebody put a curse on me. You can put all the curses on me you want. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Amen? Well, oh, she's going to put a curse. Oh, she's going to put a voodoo spell on you. Whatever, right? I'm going to pray for you. How about that? You know what I mean? I'm going to pray for you. I want to see your eyes open to the truth of who Almighty God is. Well, Balaam, as we know the story, you've got to love Balaam because Balaam is riding along on his donkey. And this donkey turns around and starts talking to him because there's an angel in front of him that's going to kill him if they keep going. And the donkey keeps stopping and he keeps kicking the donkey. And the donkey finally turns around and goes, dude, are you paying attention? Now, the funny part is that the donkey talked, but the funnier part is that Balaam talked back to the donkey. He starts having a conversation with, you know, Mr. Ed, right? He starts talking to him and having this conversation with him and arguing with If a donkey's talking, you're either on a lot of drugs or God wants to talk to you. And in either case, you need to stop, Right? And so Balaam tries to curse him and tries to curse him and, they, and God wouldn't listen. But you know what? The sad part is, in the end, they fell anyway because you know what happened? Balaam couldn't get him to curse. So what he said was, Balak, I got an idea. Send some of your women down there to sleep with their men. 
And if you can do that, you can turn them into idolaters. You can mix in with them and turn them into idolaters. So guess what? It wasn't the curse of men that brought them down, but it was their own choice to, to go contrary to God's will and to fall into sexual immorality. You know what? I find this more, to be true more often than not. The main reason I get in trouble is my own stinking decisions. Amen? Don't blame it on somebody else. We always want to. Well, if, well it's not really my fault. I mean, I, that's, you know, and the thing happened. We love to do that. When confronted with sin, you can do one of three things. You can make excuses, you can accuse others, or you can repent. And we like the first two. Well, it's not really my fault and the thing, and I didn't have, you know, I had too many Twinkies today, that's why I shot 12 people, that's just the problem. I, had too, I was on a sugar high, you know. Or, my, it's, my, it's the woman now gave us to me, it's her fault. It's always somebody else's fault. We want to blame everybody instead of repenting over our sin. Instead of being broken over what we've done. So, Joshua reminds them that God chose them, God delivered them, God had guided and protected them, and now God gives them an inheritance. Look at 11 through 13. Then you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the men of Jericho fought against you. Also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, but I delivered them all into your hand. Who delivered them? God did. Now, God delivered them, but were they waving swords out there? Part of, the, of course they were. Were they fighting battles? Yes, they were. Were they being obedient? Yes, they were. But who brought the victory? God did. Because without Him, we can do nothing. The same God who took them through the Red Sea now had brought them into their inheritance and delivered all the enemies into their hand. And again, except for their temporary defeat at Ai and the mistake they made with the Gibeonites, God had given them victory everywhere they went. Now look at verse 12. This is interesting. I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you, also the two kings of the Aborites, but not with the sword or your bow. So he sent a hornet before them. Now what does that mean? Three possibilities. The word in Hebrew is a a stinging wasp. So there's a very real possibility that God could have sent stinging wasps in before him and be stinging up all the people just in letting them know my children are coming and here's a taste of what's coming. And stung them. It also could be pointing to the fear that that when they were coming, the closer they got, the more afraid they became. Much like Balak. Balak heard they might be coming and he was scared to death. He said, oh man, we got to do something. They might come here and harm me. But God had gone before them even before they entered in. And Rahab describes the Canaanites' panic because of what they heard about Israel back in chapter 2. He said, as soon as we heard these things, our hearts did melt. Neither did there remain courage in any man because of you. We heard about what your God was doing and we were scared to death. Man, can you imagine if we were so on fire for God that the unbelievers in Santa Cruz County were shaken? That would be good. Can you imagine if they were in awe, fear and reverence of Almighty God and were afraid to speak out against Him or afraid to do anything because they knew how powerful our God was because of the work He's done in our lives? Now, I better not say anything against that God because I've seen what He can do. He's a great and an awesome God. Because it says there, they won the battles, but not with your sword and not with your bow. So God had brought the victory, and it was not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Verse 13. I have given you a land for which you did not labor, cities for which you did not build, and you dwell in them. You eat of its vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. God had given them a great inheritance and they hadn't done anything for it. 
That's what an inheritance is. Salvation is a free gift, amen? If we earned it, it would be a paycheck. God doesn't say, I'm going to give you a paycheck. If you're... He doesn't say that. He says, I have the free gift of salvation available to all men. If anybody comes unto Him, He'll give you the free gift of salvation. And this land was not something they inherited. So Joshua reminds them of past blessings and they apply to each one of us. Let's go through them quickly and then we'll move on to the second section. God chose Israel. Guess what? God chose you. Aren't you glad? Sometimes I haven't been picked for things. Ever got your feelings hurt because nobody picked you? Here's the good news. God picked you. Amen? And that's the only one that matters. God chose Israel. God chose you. God delivered Israel out of bondage in Egypt. God has delivered you from sin, death, and the grave. Amen? He delivered them, and He delivered you. It says there that God guided Israel. The Bible tells us that He leads and guides us today. He, he walks with me and talks with me a long life's narrow way. Amen? He's leading me and guiding me and directing my every footstep if I will simply obey. He had given them an inheritance. Guess what, guys? He's given us the greatest inheritance of all. We're going to heaven. Amen? Are you a little more excited about than that? Now, if you won $100 million in the lottery, how excited would you be? You'd be floating out of your chair. You'd be doing cartwheels through here. You would. Driving your brand new G-Ride out front, wearing some expensive stuff, right? And telling everybody. But I see you're going to heaven. You go, oh yeah, I'm going to heaven. Which is better? Which, amen. Guys are napping. I think those soft chairs, man. I don't know about them soft chairs on Wednesday nights. Those might have to stay put away. All right. So we see here that the Lord reminds them through Joshua all he had done for them. Now he says, here's how you're to respond. Here's what God's done. Here's how you respond. Here's what God's done. Here's how you and I are to respond. In light of all that God's done for us, how do we respond? Look at verse 14. Now therefore, fear the Lord, serve Him in sincerity and in truth. How do we respond knowing that we've been saved, we've been adopted, accepted, redeemed, chosen, forgiven, enlightened, insured, that we're going to heaven? How should we respond in sincerity and in truth, fearing Him? The Bible says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And the reason that the world is so dumb today is there's no fear of God. The lack of fear is the beginning of foolishness. Because then we don't, we don't understand how great God is. The word there, sincerity, you've heard me talk about this before. In the original language, means without wax. What does that mean? Well, when people made sculptures, they would put wax in them. And when they would say, is it sincere about a sculpture, they were saying, is this really true to itself, or did you just melt some wax in there? Kind of like Bondo, right? Does this car have Bondo all over it, or what? I mean, is this really what this car is supposed to be like? And so... If it was sincere, it was without wax. Because if you got one that was insincere, you'd set that statue out, it would get hot outside, and outside his nose would melt off, and you'd be all bummed out. So you'd say right up front, is this without wax? Is this sincere? And God's saying, we need to be without wax. We need to not pretending, be, pretending to be something we're not. We need to be serving God in sincerity and in truth. And Joshua's making it clear that it was a choice. Because he says to them, serve him. Fear the Lord, serve him. He's going to say serve him 16 times in the rest of the chapter. Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth. Guys, there's so often that we think it's acceptable to lie 
or to make something up if somehow maybe it's going to help somebody out, in our opinion. My kids ask me these questions all the time. They're, they're at that age. Well, what if, what if, Dad, somebody came up to you and said, is that person in that room, and if they went into that room, they were going to kill them? Would you lie? Or would you tell the truth? What would you do, Dad? Dad, what if, you know, someone asked you this? What if it was going to cost you this? What if you're going to lose that? I said, so what you're saying then is we should only obey God if it doesn't cost us anything. Is that what you're saying? I say to my kids, oh, well, no, I, we should always. Okay, so the price of the consequence or the, of obeying God is irrelevant. We should always obey God. I ran into this problem in India. You know, they told me when I was in India, don't tell people you're a Christian. I was there during Diwali, which is the high Hindu holiday, so they're pretty whipped up, they're having fireworks. And they said, stay in your hotel room, don't leave, and if you go out for any reason, don't tell them you're a Christian. So I'm out, of course, and I'm out walking down the street. I'm rebellious that way. So I'm out walking down the street, looking at all the idols everywhere with the other pastors with me, and sure, you know, and I'm the only white guy there. The only other white guy I saw the whole time I was there was the guy I was with. So you kind of stand out. And so people were coming up to me saying, why are you here? And they said, you're supposed to say, well, I'm a teacher, or I'm this. And, I, and I, I turned to Carl, I go, dude, you might as well go back to the room because I can't do it. I said, I'm a born-again Christian, and God sent me here to tell you that Jesus loves you and suffered and died that you might have eternal life, and I can tell you today how you can be born again. Yeah. Now, I might have died. But the point is, I couldn't, and I was getting, and they went back and said, I heard you were telling people you're a Christian. I said, Yeah. How can I not? What if I tell them I'm a teacher, they kill me, I'm standing for Almighty God. I, I should have told them. I, I should have told them. Without wax. Right? Don't be insincere. Be sincere before Almighty God. And he says there, fear the Lord. Don't fear man. Fear God and speak in sincerity and truth. And then what he says is, put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Exclamation point. Now, why is he telling them to put away the gods? That means they still have some. Right? Wait a minute. Didn't you cross the Red Sea? Yep. Didn't we go through the Jordan? Yep. Didn't we wipe out, wipe out the people with fortresses? Didn't we see God's hand at work? Didn't we wipe out the giants in the land? You still have idols? And he says, get rid of them. Guess what? We've still got idols today. Oh, I don't have any idols in my house. Well... For some of us, it could be the window into hell in the corner of our living room we call our television. Right? <laughs> you know. You know. 150 channels of hell, you know. Just to, and again, I have a TV. I want to make it really clear. I like to watch sports, and i got to be careful of that too. But you know what? He's telling them, get rid of the idols. Get rid of anything that takes your eyes off of God. Anything that stumbles you in your walk with the Lord. Pastor Dave, you're being legalistic now. No, God's called us to be holy. Amen? Now, we are under God's grace, but we are to walk in holiness at the same time. And those two things are not mutually exclusive of each other. Man, I'm in trouble. We're on verse 15. All right. Verse 15. So serve the Lord, he says. Exclamation point. Now, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. If you have a family, it's probably yours too. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. If you call my house on our answering machine, it says, 
Hello, you've reached the Johnston residence, and as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. All over our house, it's our theme verse. We've got it on plaques and all kinds of stuff everywhere in our house. You can't find a room in our house if that verse isn't there. And you know what? God has called us to make a stand to say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord because our house is serving something. Our house is serving someone. And guess whose responsibility it is to make sure your family is serving the Lord? It's yours, Dad. The Bible says no man can serve two masters. You'll either hate one and love the other or love one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. It also says, Jesus said, he who is not with me is against me. You're either for God or you're against God. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Jesus is telling them to choose, or Joshua is telling them to choose who you're going to serve. Are you going to serve God or are you going to serve the world? And too often we try to serve both. It reminds me of the illustration of a, a young man during the Civil War that tried to get away with being on both sides. He wore gray pants and a blue, blue uh, jacket. And then he went out into the battle and thought, this way I'll be safe. You know what happened? Both sides shot him. Both people shot him. He tried to be too much like both, and he ended up getting shot by both. And we need to choose today whom we're going to serve. And as for, say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. God desires that we take the spiritual leadership in our home. And that means it's okay. You know what? I'm so tired. I, okay, I'm going to be real open with you. I'm so tired of hearing parents tell me that their kids don't want to go to church. I was a youth pastor 15 years. Well, my 15-year-old doesn't want to come anymore, so I let him stay home and watch football. Okay. If he doesn't want to go to algebra tomorrow, are you going to make him go? Well, of course, he needs math. Oh, but he doesn't need the Lord. Why do you got to be like that, Pastor Dave? But here's the point. Be the parent. Amen? Your kids have parents for a reason. And so, I, my kids, get up, you're going to church. Well, I, have a, I don't care. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Make a decision to make God the priority and carry it out. Don't just believe it in word, but live it out in action. Because he's going to tell them here again that... This is what God has called us to do, but now they need to respond in action. We need to keep moving. Verse 16. So the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Again, you've got to serve somebody. We're all serving something. And they said, they understood, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods, because the only time we serve other gods is when we've forsaken the Lord. Verse 17. For the Lord our God is He who brought us and our fathers out of the land of Egypt, from the house of bondage, who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in a way that we all went, and among all the people through whom we passed. He's remembering what all the, that God had done. How can we not serve such a great God who's done so many things in our lives? And the Lord drove, verse 18, out from before us all the people, including the Amorites, who dwell in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for He is our God. This sounds really good, doesn't it? We're going to serve Him. That's our heart. We're going to serve the Lord. Guess what, guys? God's desire is we not just proclaim it verbally, but we live it with our actions. Remember the children of Israel said, we're going to serve God. We're going to honor Him. We're going to serve God. Moses goes up on the mountain. What do they start doing? Worshiping a golden calf. We can say we're going to serve God, but God says, you know what, if you really mean it, it'll transform not just your words, but your actions. And so let's look at the last point. Deciding to serve the Lord is what he exhorts them to do. Now he says, let your actions reflect your decision. 
And by the way, I want to say this. I have a real heart. People are getting saved at our church, if you haven't noticed. God's good, amen? People are getting saved. Here's what I have a heart for. You pray about if you want to be involved in this. I have a heart that we would have people, that when people get saved, that we would have new believers packets for them, and we would not let them walk out of the door. So if someone sits them down, hands them a new believer's Bible, hands the open, takes them through the four spiritual laws and makes sure they understand the decision they've made, gets, exchanges phone numbers with them and says, if you have questions, call me. Invites them out to lunch. Invites them to the women's study or the men's study or the couples or whatever's appropriate. You know what? We need to do that. Amen. People are getting saved and they walk out of here. Man, you know what? Again, God is the one who does the work, but God wants us to take a proactive part in discipling these people. God didn't call us to make converts, but disciples. Amen? So that's my heart. I'm fired up, I know. Verse 19. Look what it says here. The Lord drove them all out. He said, we will serve the Lord. But Joshua said to the people, you cannot serve the Lord, for He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. Now, is he trying to blow their gig here or what? Joshua says, you can't serve God. You know what? Joshua isn't going to make it easy for the people. While there are plenty of evangelists that try to do that today, to make it as easy as possible. But the truth is that coming to the Lord should be something that we're not ashamed to do. Jesus said, if you profess me before men, I'll profess you before my Father in heaven, right? If you confess me before men, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. It needs to be more than a quick hand raised and a life never changed. We need to make a stand for Almighty God. Let's move on. But I want to encourage you. He's telling them, don't follow God if you're not willing to be holy. Don't follow God if you're not willing to get rid of all your idols. Don't follow God and cheapen His grace by continuing to sin. He's not trying to discourage them, but He's trying to encourage them to really live sold out for God. And I want to encourage you, I was going to read it, but we don't have time. Read Luke 14, verse 25 through 33 later. And that's where He says to them, unless you hate your mother and father, you cannot be my disciples. What does He mean? He's not telling you to hate your parents. He's saying you need to love God so much that the love you have for anything else is hatred in comparison to your love for God. It's He's got to be the priority in your life. Number one, above all things. Look at verse 20. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then He will turn and do you harm and consume you after He has done you good. He's warning them that sin has consequences. He's saying, guys, follow God, but if you don't, sin has consequences. Again, too many... Churches today want to just tell people, come to Jesus, your life will be a cruise ship to heaven. We need to know that sin still has consequences even when we're in the land of promise. Even when we're living a spirit-filled life, sin still has consequences. Verse 21, And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Now I think Joshua's stoked right here. Why? Because he said, here's what the consequences are. Here's what it really means to serve the Lord. It means you're going to get rid of your foreign gods. It means you're going to walk in holiness and they say, we still want to serve Him anyway. We know the price, we want to do it. Guys, we know the price, we ought to want to do it, amen? Above all else, living sold out for Him. Must be more than just empty words, but true commitment. Verse 22. So Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve Him. And they said, We are witnesses. This is their public confession. We're witnesses that we've chosen to serve God. Verse 23. Now therefore, he said, Put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord God 
of Israel. True confession and true repentance produces actions. You got to serve somebody. So if you're going to serve God, you got to put the foreign gods away. Guys, I believe this too. I believe that there are some things that may stumble you that won't stumble me, and some things that may stumble me that won't stumble you. You need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit that there's something that might stumble you, even if nobody else would be stumbled by it, get rid of it. Amen? Cleanse your house. Dads, be the spiritual leader. You can only serve the true and living God or the gods of this world. Choose one. And he says, incline your heart to the Lord. The Bible says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Who are you listening to? Where is your heart? Verse 24. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and His voice we will obey. Three times they've affirmed their desire to serve God. True service to God requires obedience to His Word. They're saying, we're going to obey Him. We're going to heed His Word. We're going to walk in obedience to the Lord. I want you to see this. We're almost done, but there's such a clear picture here. I love this. Look at verse 25. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. So Joshua made a covenant with the people. The word there for covenant, you like the original language, is cut. He literally cut an animal in half. That's how they made covenants in those days. They put half on one side, half on the other, and they would walk in between the animals that were, that were cut. And that was their way of saying, we agree so much that if we disobey this, this is what's going to happen to us. They saw the price of disobedience to the covenant, and it was shed blood of these animals. The word for statute is commandment, and the word for ordinance is verdict. So they were passing through the sacrifice, and it was a commandment and a verdict of what would happen to them if they did not walk in obedience to the, command, to the covenant they had made with the Lord. Then it says in verse 26, Then Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, And he took a large stone and set it up under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. In a minute, you're going to see some stuff. It's pretty awesome. So Joshua writes these words in the book. He recorded them so they wouldn't be forgotten. Okay, you guys have said you made a commitment. I'm going to write it down. That reminds me of the Lamb's Book of Life. Amen? You made a commitment to God. It's written down. They passed between Joshua and the people. The book of the law... We know that it says in Deuteronomy, the book of the law was put with the Ark of the Covenant. So they pulled the book of the law out and it was written in there. It's even possible he's talking about writing the book of Joshua. And he wrote it into the book of the law. Maybe that he just wrote this covenant into the book of the law. A large stone. They put a monument with these same words inscribed so everybody who passed by would see it. They put the stone under an oak tree by the sanctuary. The sanctuary was where the Ark of the Covenant was. Just a minute, I'm going to tie all this together. Now, it says there that the stone, in verse 27, And Joshua said to all the people, This stone shall be a witness to us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord which we spoke to us. It shall be, therefore, a witness to you, lest you deny God. So the stone would be a witness of all that the Lord had said to them, and the response to say, yes, we want to serve God. Verse 28, So Joshua let the people depart, each to his own inheritance. So Joshua said, okay, you've heard what I've had to say. You can all go to your land now and be obedient to the command. Now, let me tie all this together. Look at the types here. First of all, a covenant. Flesh, cut, divided, and sacrificed. Who's that a picture of? Jesus. The statute and the ordinance, that this would be a commandment 
and also a verdict. Guess what? The cross of Christ is either a place where we receive salvation or we are judged for our sin. It's up to us. So it was a statute and an ordinance that this covenant had been made. For some, it would draw us unto salvation and we would see it as a place of salvation. For others, it was a place of judgment. Shechem is the place it took place. Shechem was a city of what? Of refuge. Who's our refuge? Jesus Christ. Then it says that they passed between Joshua and the people. Now what's interesting about this is that it, was, it passed through Joshua and the people. And we know that Joshua was standing on behalf of the Lord to the people. He was representing the Lord our Almighty God, to the people. He was making the covenant with the people on behalf of God. Joshua's name means Jesus. He's the one that made the covenant with us on behalf of the Father. Amen? All of this so clearly the Lord. Then he says, he took a large stone. Now, first of all, it's written in a book, the book being a picture of the Word of God, and he took a large stone. The large stone, the Bible tells us that the cross of Christ is a stone of offense, but where do we see a large stone? rolled over the front of the tomb. So there was a large stone. And it says of that stone that it would be a witness. What is the greatest witness to the fact that Jesus Christ is God? He's risen. Amen? He is a risen and a living Savior. But look what it says. Put the stone under what? The oak tree. Put it under a tree. Those of you going to Israel with us, we leave on Monday. When you go to Calvary... Calvary's up on a hill right here. At the bottom of that hill, Golgotha, Calvary, you go down to the bottom of that hill, and that very same place, as the Bible says, is the tomb of a rich man. At the bottom of the hill is the tomb. And guess what was covering the tomb? The stone. And it says here, put the stone under the oak tree. Nothing happens in the Bible by chance. Amen? I love the Bible. It rocks. People think, oh, some men wrote it. Men are too dumb to have written it. There's no way. God wrote it and used man's hands. Now it says there that it was by a sanctuary. The sanctuary is where the ark was. I don't have time to go into it, but the ark is a picture of the cross, right? It's where the blood was shed, right? The blood was sprinkled. Going to the Holy of Holies. But it was also a picture of the tomb. Because there were angels at the foot and at the head of it. And when they went in to see Jesus, and he wasn't there anymore, it says there was an angel at the foot of the head of the tomb, and the, the bloody cloth was in the middle. And when you looked at the Ark of the Covenant, after the blood was sprinkled, there was blood in the middle, and angels at the head in the tomb. Now what's interesting is inside of the Ark of the Covenant was the law. But covering the law was the mercy seat. Why? Because if you look straight at the law, you're condemned. But God covered the law with His mercy. Don't you love the Bible? And again, the Ark of the Covenant is yet another picture of Jesus Christ. All of this in these few short verses. And He says there, all who make the covenant will be given what? An inheritance. Guess what? When you come to know Jesus Christ, when you've been born again, you've been given an inheritance because it's a picture of heaven. Last four verses. Now it came to pass after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. You know what? Joshua finished strong. 110, his last words were pointing people to the Lord. 
Verse 30, And they buried him within the border of the inheritance of Timnasera, which is on the mountains of Ephraim, on the north side of Mount Gaash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who, were no, who had known all the works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Can there be a greater testimony than to say that the entire time he led the people, they served God? What a great testimony for Joshua. Then it says, And the bones of Joseph... With the children of Israel brought up out of Egypt, they buried at Shechem in the plot of ground which Jacob had brought from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of silver, which had become an inheritance of the children of Joseph. Here's what's interesting. This is the fulfillment of prophecy all the way back from Genesis chapter 50 that Joshua said, I want to be buried in the land of promise. It means that Joshua believed God's promise that one day they would be within the land of promise and they carried his bones around for hundreds of years. And he was buried in the land of promise. Lastly, and Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died and they buried him in a hill belonging to Phinehas, his son, which was given to him in the mountains of Ephraim. Now what's interesting is three guys die here, or three guys are buried. But what I love about this, and you've heard me say this before, this is just your pastor's opinion, you don't have to, you know, run with it, but Jesus, Joshua's name is also what? Jesus. Eleazar's name means helper. Who's the helper that the Lord sent? Holy Spirit. And Joseph was one of the fathers of the faith. And so in the land of promise, being buried together was the Son, a picture of the Son, a picture of the Holy Spirit, and one of the fathers of the faith. Again, take it or leave it, but to me, that's a clear picture of the Trinity. So in closing, you got to serve somebody. Who are you going to serve? God has done so much for us. He's chosen us. He's delivered us. He's guided us. He's given us an inheritance. Now it's up to us to decide to serve the Lord and then let, allow that decision to impact our actions. Guys, if we really want to serve God, it ought to change the way we live. We ought to be so different from the world that they want to know the God we serve. They ought to say, what is up with you? And you say, Jesus, I know the Lord. You know what? Maybe some of you are here tonight and it's time for you to rededicate your life to the Lord. It's time for you to say, you know what? I need to start putting actions to my belief system. I need not to just talk about God or believe in God, but I need to start living for God. He brought him back to Shechem to remind him of the place where they'd made their initial covenant with the Lord. The Lord would want to bring you back like communion to the cross. Remember what God has done for you and remember the commitment you've made to Him. Now it's time for us to live for Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You and praise You for Your love and Your grace and thank You for the just Your Word, Lord. It's so powerful and so mighty. Father, I pray for everyone here in our walks with You. Help us, Lord, to have, our, have actions that match our beliefs. Lord, actions that match our words. And Lord, help us to speak Your Word and not be ashamed of it. Father, we do pray for Santa Cruz County, for revival in every heart. Help us, Lord, to live for You, to touch lives. Father, I pray for those who are here tonight. The Lord, as the Word's being taught, that their own hearts are being pierced, that it's time for them to rededicate their lives, to renew their covenant promise with You, to stand before You and say, Lord, here I am. I want to make you the priority of my life once again. If that's your heart tonight, I just want you to stand to your feet so I can pray for you. Praise the Lord. God bless you guys. Heavenly Father, you see every person who's standing. Lord, I ask as they stand before you, Lord, that you'd pour out your Holy Spirit upon every single one of them. Fill them to overflowing that they might 
live lives set apart for you. Father, I pray that they would cleanse their homes of the things that would distract them. They would remove the idols out of their houses, Father. I pray, Lord, for areas where you've not been the priority. Help them by the power of your Spirit to make you the priority. Father, I pray that their actions would match their words. Father, they would live life set apart and sold out for you. That, Father, they would be contagious in their faith and in their love for you. That others would, would see a clear reflection of you in the way that they live. Lord, bless them, strengthen them, minister to them, Lord. May this be a covenant between, the, between you and them, Lord. We know all that you've done. It's our desire now to respond to what you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song. We are